0: We all know the government mantra by now. It's been just over a month since Boris Johnson first told us to
1: stay at home, protect our NHS, and save lives.
0: But as the Prime Minister returns to work calling for patience with the lockdown, how has the government fared so far?
2: One of the Whitehall sources I spoke to, the quote that I was given was that countries to which we give foreign aid are now looking at the PPE we're using in horror.
0: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, as Boris Johnson returns to Downing Street, is the strategy to stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives, working.
1: I'm sorry I've been away from my desk for much longer than I would have liked.
0: As the Prime Minister returned to work this week, a similar reunion with the office was taking place at the Sunday Times.
2: Normally, Saturday would be our busiest day. It would be humming, there would be people shouting across the desk to get
0: certain bits of copy through. Caroline Wheeler is the deputy political editor of the Sunday Times. This weekend, she found herself back in the office for the first time since lockdown began.
2: There'd be journalists conversing with each other. There'd be journalists on the telephone. And it was just very quiet. Yeah,
3: I have to say it's a bit unsettling to be in a newsroom that's that quiet.
0: And that's Rosamund Irwin, senior reporter. Although nearly everyone at The Times and The Sunday Times has been working from home since the middle of March, it still takes a rotating skeleton crew in the office under strict social distancing guidelines to get the paper out each day. Journalists are among those designated as key workers. It's
3: so against the nature of what a newsroom normally is, particularly for us on a Sunday paper on a
1: Saturday. Once again, I want to thank you, the people of this country, for the sheer grit and guts you've shown and are continuing to show.
0: Boris Johnson is back at work this week. Caroline, what are people in Westminster saying about his return? We've sort of had a a placeholder PM for a, a few weeks. Does this mean things will start moving? Will they be very different? Well,
2: the briefing that we're getting from Downing Street is that the Prime Minister is raring to go, was the quote that was put out to the Sunday newspapers this weekend. There has been somewhat of a sort of void, some would say, since his departure. One cabinet minister described it to me as they hoped it would lift the spirits of the nation, that they would see him return
0: and that he would show real leadership to the country again. So they're hoping it'll affect morale. But also in terms of the decision making, do we think things are likely to change with Boris Johnson back at the helm? Has there been a reluctance to take any big decisions without him? I
2: think the reflection on Dominic Raab's tenure as First Secretary and deputising for the Prime Minister, as one Cabinet Minister told me, a lot of the decision-making has been very process-driven rather than politically-driven. So I think with the return of the Prime Minister, there's a hope that those really political decisions will now be taken. And certainly we're hearing some noises from within government. One suggestion that they're going to change the slogan that we've been hearing everywhere, which of course has been stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives, that that slogan may be changing towards the end of the week. So there's certainly some suggestion that there might be some kind of step change within government. And that really is reflected, I think, in the fact that we're now, what, a month into the lockdown? And certainly there are signs that the public are growing weary of it. But certainly that those within the party, both uh, sort of senior backbenchers, we've had the chairman of the 1922 committee, Graham Brady. And of course, in the Sunday Times this weekend, we've revealed quite a lot of disquiet from the Tory donors that bankroll the party. That it's very likely that the Prime Minister is going to take some heed of the advice they're giving him, which is now is the time perhaps to stop prioritising the NHS as much, which, of course, hasn't fallen over in the way that some were potentially thinking it might, and start thinking about the economy on the basis that there are some concerns that actually the collapse of the economy could, in fact, be more dangerous than the virus itself.
1: We will beat the coronavirus, and we will beat it together. And therefore, I urge you, at this moment of national emergency, to stay at home, protect our NHS and save lives.
0: It's really interesting that they are thinking of changing that message because when Boris Johnson stood up five weeks ago and announced the lockdown, it was exactly how he sort of set it out. And it's sort of become like this frequently repeated mantra, the stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. In terms of the stay at home bit. How have they done in terms of the popularity with the public?
2: I think what's really interesting about this is the polling that's been done sort of pretty uniformly since the lockdown came in has shown that the public are very much behind the lockdown. But when you ask the question about how many of you know people that have broken the lockdown, virtually everybody says they know somebody that has, which suggests that whilst people support the lockdown, they're not necessarily following it to the letter. Ah. And certainly some of the statistics that we're seeing suggest that certainly driving is starting to to increase again. So there are some suggestions that the lockdown is starting to be flouted a bit more routinely. They introduce the lockdown at the time that the public wanted it. They'll ease the lockdown at the time the public wanted it. But the thing nobody wants is to end up with a situation
0: where it's being sort of imposed rather than done by consent. It was interesting this weekend that at the same time, some of the commentators, I think Alison Pearson at The Telegraph, who's normally a big Boris Johnson cheerleader, has been talking about flouting the rules and encouraging people to break the lockdown. Is that a bit of a shift? uh, Do you think that will worry Boris Johnson if people who normally are very supportive are now sort of challenging the idea of lockdown? I think it will worry him. I mean, I think,
2: you know, that's, sort of echoed in the piece that we've had in the Sunday Times, which is you are starting to see quite a lot of disquiet on his backbenches. The idea that the 1922 committee are sort of not behind him will be of concern. Now, I think... What's precipitated some of this has been some of the rather aggressive briefings from Downing Street last week, where it was suggested that the Prime Minister's own experience of coronavirus, having nearly lost his own life to it, had really made him a bit more tentative about the lockdown. And actually, there were quotes suggesting that he would be in no rush to lift the restrictions.
1: And so I know it is tough. And I want to get this economy moving as fast as I can, but I refuse to throw away all the effort and the sacrifice of the British people and to risk a second major outbreak and huge loss of life and the overwhelming of the NHS. And I ask you to contain your impatience because I believe we are coming now to the end of the first phase of this conflict.
2: And I actually think that that's caused a degree of alarm amongst the party because even a Treasury forecast that had been circulated amongst Cabinet Ministers show that if the lockdown goes on for too long you really don't have much of an economy to come back to because people start making longer term decisions even beyond the furlough process so rather than just furloughing people you know they might be starting to take decisions about maybe making people redundant, uh, the supply chains collapse and then that becomes a really significant problem for the government and I think that's why you're seeing some of those ordinary very loyal backbenchers breaking ranks to say there's a balance here between saving lives but also protecting the economy and the unavoidable consequences of that which could involve more people
0: suffering. So there's a lot of strong feeling on the backbenches. How will he deal with the cabinet? Is the cabinet split along those sort of safety first versus you can't put the economy on ice forever lines? Do we know who's veering in which direction? From
2: what I can gather, I mean, there's been a lot made of the doves and the hawks within Cabinet. The sort of outrider for the hawks have been Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, the Business Secretary, Alex Sharma. And on the Dove side, you've got Hancock, the Health Secretary. But having spoken to Cabinet Ministers this week, I mean, I'm really being told that there's nobody in Cabinet other than perhaps the Health Secretary who want to see the lockdown go on. And want to see it ended as quickly as possible.
0: So there will be a lot of pressure from within Cabinet. And it's surprising because he's been off so sick. And you'd think when he came back, he'd sort that, you know, there'd be a lot of good feeling. And it's, it's surprising that there's sort of so much frustration instead. I think there was a lot of good feeling. And I think there were a lot of people that were very
2: cautious about breaking ranks. Certainly, I've been speaking to backbenchers, even during the time the Prime Minister was in hospital, who were very concerned about the lockdown and how long it was going to go on and the impact on the economy, but were not willing to go on the record with those concerns at that point. But then a couple of days after he came out of hospital, you started to see a few people breaking ranks. You saw the David Davis, Liam Fox. Duncan Smith starting to sort of make some rumblings about the lockdown, and that noise has just got louder.
1: In spite of all the suffering, we have so nearly succeeded. We defied so many predictions. We did not run out of ventilators or ICU beds. We did not allow our NHS to collapse. And on the contrary, we have so far collectively shielded our NHS so that our incredible doctors and nurses and healthcare staff have been able to shield all of us from an outbreak that would have been far worse.
0: The second part of the mantra that we've been hearing about protecting the NHS, Ros, what are you hearing from doctors? Do they feel protected?
3: Well, obviously, the big subject that is coming up repeatedly and everyone thinks is going to be a big feature of the inevitable inquiry that we get into the government's handling of this is the lack of personal protective equipment. I would say it varies hugely hospital to hospital. So I've got friends and contacts in two major London hospitals. And actually, they've been incredibly impressed with how their hospitals have handled it. But that is not the case in a lot of other hospitals. And the number of staff who have complained that they are being forced to work in unsafe conditions is vast. So last week, a doctor called Nishant Yoshi announced that he was mounting a formal legal challenge to the government's PPE guidelines. He's a doctor and his wife, who's pregnant, is a doctor. And they both treated patients with COVID-19. And they argue that the government's guidance is not protecting frontline staff.
5: Today, I want to address what we're doing to make sure that we have enough PPE, protective equipment, and to make sure that it gets to the right people.
0: Guidelines are, it seems like they're being based on the supply rather than on the science. And this is costing our lives.
5: There's enough PPE to go round, but only if it's used in line with our guidance. We need everyone to treat PPE like the precious resource that it is.
3: Matt Hancock had said that the guidelines are based on the use of our precious resources, meaning PPE. This is something he'd said last week. And there was a lot of criticism about that because, as Dr. Yoshi says, that admits the government is basing its guidelines on supply and he would argue not safety. And so his question is Has the government knowingly exposed healthcare workers to potential risk? These people do not feel protected. A clerical worker who actually works in an A&E told me that she is not entitled to any personal protective equipment, not even gloves. And she had taken to... It was rather heartbreaking, I should add, she's also pregnant. She had taken to walking around the corridors in a builder's mask, which she called DIY PPE. And she actually has a lot of interaction with patients. I have to say the basic thing of have we protected our NHS staff well enough, I think it's impossible to argue that that's the case when the current data suggests more than 100 health and social care workers have died.
2: thing That's interesting about that, Ros, as well, is that the risk of a pandemic has always been at the top of the government's sort of national risk register. So the idea that this was not the biggest threat that was posed to our nation is sort of laughable, really. And certainly we've seen leaks of some of that national security risk register documentation, which even as early as last year was saying one of the things that the government needed to do was massively stockpile PPE. And of course, that didn't happen. And then we've seen some modelling which was circulated amongst ministers during the week, which on the basis that we've used a billion items already during this pandemic, the forecast is that we might be short of up to a billion more in a sort of 90-day period, which really exposes the fact that there has been a lack of forethought in
0: terms of stockpiling these kinds of items. It's an astonishing story. Who was that commissioned by? Who was that report for? It was commissioned
2: for the government. It's fairly standard that the government would do something like that, particularly when you're in the middle of a pandemic and there's a particular item that you're desperately required in order to keep your frontline staff safe. But it was pointed out to me by government sources that this was quite an extraordinary number of potential items that are short. It's very difficult to stockpile very quickly, and we've seen lots of reports of organisations and companies that have had this PPE equipment, just simply not being able to get in touch with the government and highlight to them that they've got these products for sale.
3: Since we've written our article, I've been contacted by two companies that make PPE to say we have not been able to get the British government to take our PPE and theirs is of the highest standard. This is the other problem, that it's fantastic that all these small businesses and people from their kitchens or whatever are
2: making PPE,
3: but often they are not of a high enough standard to be used on the front line, i.e. in hospitals.
2: One of the Whitehall sources I spoke to, the quote that I was given was that Countries to which we give foreign aid are now looking at the PPE we're using in horror because it simply wouldn't meet the standards of PPE that they use in their countries. And certainly we know that to be the case in China. And you've had uh, contact with a whistleblower, haven't you, Roz, who's really exposed this?
3: Yeah, so in the European Economic Area, they have something called a CE mark, which indicates that you've got the highest standards for health and safety equipment. Now, you don't need to uh, use that anymore in this country. That's in order that, that they can get more PPE in. So we can get stuff from countries outside the European economic area and also that's made locally. Now, the problem with that is that, yes, some of it may be of really high quality, but it hasn't been as rigorously tested as it would normally be. From what I understand, they've got a slightly different policy in Scotland. So the obligation is on hospitals to check that it is of the highest standard there. Whereas what my contact was concerned about, uh, who works in procurement, was that this equipment that they were getting in for within NHS England area was not being rigorously tested, and that was going to be hugely problematic.
0: On the issue of PPE, the Department of Health told us, we are working night and day to ensure our frontline health and social care staff have the equipment they need to tackle this virus. We constantly model the PPE we will need in the future in order to manage new supplies and our stockpiles. There is a national effort to increase domestic production, scaling up existing manufacturing whilst tapping into new resources. In addition, there is a significant international strategy to ensure that we have the PPE we need.
6: That's stamps.com. Code program. I'm David Badil. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew.
0: I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always
2: seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, yeah. we are going to go there.
5: I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew, go there.
3: Find us wherever you get your podcasts.
0: From the, the NHS workers and the doctors you are speaking to, do they feel like enough is being done to protect them?
3: No, in a word. Some people will say their trust has been great. Of course they will. But no, people are really quite frightened. I mean, someone told me that she was going into work and bursting into tears in the loose. The big thing I looked at this weekend was pregnant healthcare workers. We do not yet have good enough evidence of the effect of COVID on pregnant women. But there has been two nurses, in fact, now who died, who were heavily pregnant in this country. And one of them, who was a nurse at Luton Dunstall Hospital, she had an emergency C-section and her baby daughter actually survived. But a lot of women feel who work in the NHS and are pregnant that it's strange that the government guidance since the 16th of March has been that pregnant women are in the vulnerable group and yet if you're under 28 weeks pregnant and working in the NHS the guidance is that you can keep working and I have to say it does feel a bit ludicrous. You can't get your routine pregnancy bloods done at your GP because you're in a shielded group. You cannot necessarily bring your partner in to have a scan and yet they're being told at the same time that they should be going to
0: work and in some cases handling patients. So these pregnant women are having to work despite the guidance for everybody else. They're feeling vulnerable at work and there are no exemptions being made. There are no sort of rules to protect them.
3: Well, many expectant mothers who work for the NHS have been told they can work from home where that's possible. And this would only apply up until 28 weeks pregnant, where the advice is that you are completely entitled not to be at work. Obviously, decisions are made on a departmental level, so people are being moved off COVID wards. Although I did find a nurse who was on a COVID ward and was pregnant and had told her department head that she was pregnant. So I did find that particular case
0: shocking. And are they scared, these women you've spoken to? Yeah, I mean, lots
3: of them were suffering with anxiety. And that actually, I have to say, from a personal level, I found it very upsetting, because they said, well, this has made me anxious at a time that should be happy. That's the other thing, you know, this should be a happy time for people. And obviously, it's a very tough time to be pregnant anyway. But if you're additionally working in the NHS, I think it's downright cruel, really. I have to say, I think there should have been a blanket policy where they were told they were all entitled to be off on full pay. But one of the problems there is that because the NHS has a predominantly female workforce, I think they were scared they couldn't cope if they gave that policy out. But some places have been excellent. And some people said, well, actually, I was entitled to work from home from the beginning. But I do think this is one of those issues where the guidance doesn't really reflect the reality because I think if you're pregnant you feel that when not enough is known about this virus and the effect on pregnant women you can't possibly be telling people yes you need to go and work with sick people.
2: We've just had confirmation
0: from the Department of Health and Social Care. They've um, put out the latest figures, and the latest is that as of 5pm on the 24th of April, of those hospitalised in the UK who tested positive for coronavirus, 20,319 have sadly died.
1: I can tell you now, the preparations are underway... And have been for weeks to allow us to win phase two of this fight as i believe we are now on track to prevail in phase one and so i say to you finally if you can keep going in the way that you have kept going so far if you can help protect our nhs to save lives if we can show the same spirit of unity and determination as we've all shown In the past six weeks, then I have absolutely no doubt that we will beat it together. We will come through this all the faster and the United Kingdom will emerge stronger than ever before. Thank you all very much.
0: And talking of that vulnerability, you know, the the third bit of that government mantra has been saving lives. How do you think they've done on that? We've
2: just passed uh, the what was described as a sort of grim milestone, which is this twenty thousand deaths and it's important to remember that the twenty thousand deaths which was met on on Saturday is hospital deaths. So that doesn't include those deaths in care homes or those deaths in the community. And of course, we heard on the 17th of March, Sir Patrick Valance, who's the chief scientific advisor to the government, insisting that if we um, had a death toll below 20,000, it would be a good outcome. And already we're hearing some other estimates suggesting that even now, if you take into account care home deaths, that figure could easily be double that already.
5: Welcome back to Downing Street for today's coronavirus briefing. Uh, before we stop,
0: Yesterday evening, to... as Boris Johnson settled back into Downing Street, the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, and the Chief Medical Officer, Chris Whitty, said that the total number of coronavirus deaths would be much higher than the early best-case estimates.
5: And sadly, of those hospitalised with the virus, 21,092 have now died. So I'm I'm really cautious about putting these absolute numbers, but I am absolutely clear also that the 20,000 number is, is not where we will be once we add in the direct and indirect causes both in and out of hospital. Sadly, these deaths figures include 82 NHS colleagues and 16 colleagues who work in social care.
0: Matt Hancock announced a life assurance scheme for frontline NHS and social care workers who die from coronavirus in the course of their work, paying their families £60,000.
5: They dedicated their lives to caring for others. And I feel a deep personal sense of duty that we must care for their loved ones.
0: And the government repeated the message we've all become so familiar with over the past month.
5: I know that lockdown is hard for so many people. But let us all have the resolve to see this through. So please, stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, the Deputy Political Editor of The Sunday Times, Caroline Wheeler, and the Sunday Times senior reporter, Rosamund Irwin. You can read more of their work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were James Shield and Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Leo Hornack, and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Nicola Rawfast. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you liked what you heard, please do leave us a review. You can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. See you tomorrow.